Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please get them open to Mark 9. And I am going to preach this morning, but I want to thank a handful of people first. First, can we uh, just give Brandon Grace a round of applause for leading us in worship this morning? Brandon, Brandon told me today he was really sad to introduce that song uh, without a full band. And I was over there thinking that there's a better version of this song. I can't wait to hear it because um, that was awesome. And so uh, we're glad uh, for that. Also, uh, I want to thank Marty Hansen. He's been here all week redecorating, right, as you can see. Um, and so appreciative of his efforts to also make it set up to where we can have uh, service this morning. And in that vein, um, Seth, uh, Brandon, Matt uh, were here last night late. Nick Garland joined them. Scott Templeton swung by and help out just to, you, if you would have not believed this room. I walked in Friday and I was like, I don't know how we're going to have services, but they were here last night rewiring everything, resetting everything else back up uh, today so that we could have a service uh, today, I mean, and they were here late last night. And so I just want to express my appreciation for them uh, for turning this around in short order, and then we'll take it all back down and redo it again next week. So, uh, so we're excited about uh, what's to come. And, uh, and so we, uh, again, as, I, as we say, partner dust, there was a lot more of it. And so those guys did a great job last night uh, getting this set up. But I also want to thank uh, everybody who's here this morning. Uh, if you are a guest, we're especially glad that you are here. Um, and if you have not uh, ever stopped by our Connect desk and got a gift for being here, we would love uh, to express our appreciation for you and, uh, and just, uh, just know how hard it is to try something new. And so we're grateful uh, and humble that you chose this place. And uh, we pray that the Lord will meet you because we don't think it's by accident. But I'm going to get to Mark 9, uh, and I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch in this. So please join me. Father, we're grateful to be here. Uh, we're grateful to, to gather as your people. Uh, we're grateful to uh, sing praises to you, uh, to fellowship with one another, to, to meet new people, God, to, and then now, Lord, uh, after all that, to turn our attention to your word. And so, as we continue on in this uh, study of the book of Mark, God, we pray that your word would not return to you void uh, this morning, but it would accomplish everything that you've set forth for it to accomplish. We bank on that, God. We trust on that. And we pray that you would, you would arrive and you'd show up in power and move. You push me and the distractions of life out of the way. You get the glory from all this. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So my oldest daughter, Hattie, just turned 15 last month. Uh, which meant immediately she started talking to me about driver's ed, uh, which brought all the emotions that, that comes with that, right? First of all, how are you 15? Secondly, like I'm not looking forward to this season, all these things, right? And so not long ago, a couple weeks ago, I was taking her home from school and she said, hey, do you think maybe I could do my first drive? Like when we get to our house, could I drive around the neighborhood? And I thought about it and I thought, you know, that's a, that's a really good idea. When we got home, her mom did not think it was a good idea, but we didn't go in first. So I just got out and said, jump in the driver's seat and let's go around the neighborhood. Now, before you think she, I had her out on the highway, it's just, it's just a big, long rectangle. And she went around it very slowly, very carefully. The only time she made me nervous and the only time that she got really worried was when another car passed her. Like she kind of panicked and I was like, just stop. I had to just stop and let him pass, right? I mean, you're not on the road. But as for it being her first time, she did great, Right. But it led to a pretty funny conversation in the truck this week when I was taking her to school. And, and I, we, she's talking about driver's ed again. And so we got on the conversation of that first drive she had. I was like, you know, you drove my truck, which is a big full-size truck. That's pretty good for your first time. I was like, and it was okay that you were a little scared. And she said, oh, no, I wasn't scared. I just have a really hard time staying in my lane. And I let that sit for a couple seconds, and I said, you know, Hattie, I could make a pretty strong argument that that's probably the most important skill in driving. You know, staying in your lane is pretty important, so we might want to keep working on that. But last week in our study of Mark, we, we looked at a passage 
in Mark 9 that showed that Jesus' disciples, two and a half years into this apprenticeship, to this discipleship of Jesus, still don't understand what Jesus is doing and still don't even understand Jesus. And we talked about the reality that we all have a sinful nature that left to ourselves. We're going to funnel everything that we experience, everything that happens to us, through the prism of self where we ask primarily and sometimes only, how does this affect me? What does this mean for me? And we talked about how viewing life through that prism causes us to miss out on everything that's important. It could cause us to spend, I don't know, two and a half years with Jesus and still not know him. But that viewing life through that prism is the greatest threat to what God wants to do in us and through us, and it leaves in its wake just waves of destruction. Well, I'd love to tell you this morning that that's the only negative byproduct of having a sinful nature. But sadly, that's not true. It's not the only way our sinful nature affects us. Having a sinful nature has wide sweeping ramifications. I'm not a sinner this morning because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. It is at my core of who I am. Which is why me and every other human being desperately needs the salvation, forgiveness, and grace that is offered to us only in Jesus Christ because we cannot save ourselves. Now, another ramification of our sinful nature is just how opposite we view our world and we view our lives than the way that God does. Right? Our values are totally different than God's values. And spoiler alert, his are the right ones. But there's something inside of us that simply does not want to stay in our lane. Right? We always want promoted. We always want to jump up a land. I'm not talking about horizontally. I'm talking about vertically. Right? We want to move up income brackets. We want to move up job levels. We want to move up follower accounts on social media. We want to move up influence and status. We want to have more fame and more recognition and move up neighborhoods and all those things. And it becomes our identity, an obsessive pursuit of moving up. Because we believe at our core that each of those upward movements will make us happier and more fulfilled when often they don't. It's okay to receive those things as gifts from the Lord, but to pursue them at the core of who we are often leaves us empty. And the reason why is because there's always another lane up to pursue. The reason that the idea that more will someday be enough is a lie is because there will always be more just out of reach for you. And what is missing in all of this pursuit of upward promotion and more is a life of quiet contentment and just simply resting in the Lord. What is missing is trusting God to promote and elevate you when he determines you're ready. What's missing is surrendering to his good control. Jesus says they track this, right? Luke 16, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. That's Jesus saying what you have now is a testing ground. And God has seen what your faithfulness is. The call for a follower and student of Jesus is faithfulness. To devote your attention and your effort to being faithful with what he's entrusted you with in this season of life. And then let him decide if you will get more. But that takes waiting, and that takes contentment, and that takes humility, and that takes a great deal of faith in the Lord, and we don't like those things. Instead, what we're drawn to is self-promotion, self-exaltation, lane hopping, right? Desiring more than we currently have and often more than we're ready for. And in this pursuit, we cause ourselves so much more heartache than we realize because what happens when the higher lane and the upward promotion doesn't fulfill like we hoped it would? So that's when human beings turn to vices, inner desperation, and even more uh, 
desperate pursuit of promotion, basically we turn to whatever the opposite of love, joy, and peace would look like in our lives. And the value system that loves and pursues self-promotion will always have a violent collision with Jesus' value system. And we've already seen this play out in the book of Mark, and we're going to see it again today. And my prayer for today is this, that in our, in our journey, in our pursuit of selflessness, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now, that, that today will serve as another needed reminder for us sinful people. That we will, that the patience that Jesus shows his disciples here that they do not deserve will serve as an encouragement to us of who our Savior is and that we will see anew the need for our values to match our kings. And so I'm going to invite Travis Beckner up. He's going to be reading for us Mark 9, verses 33 through 37. And Travis, I'm going to invite you to either read from the floor or get a running start and jump up here, all right? Um, but if you're physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, church. It's on uh, page 896 if you're using one of the Bibles in the uh, chair backs there. Um, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Thanks, Trav. You guys have a seat. Now, have you ever noticed how good Jesus is at asking questions? I want you to think about this, right? He, he knows full well what they were arguing about on the road, right? And now that he's asked the question, the disciples know that he knows. But the genius of it is this. Instead of just pointing it out, instead of just making them, like, instead of just telling them how wrong they are, instead of getting frustrated, right, he's making them put words to it. You know what he's doing? Say it, fellas. Say it. Say it out loud. What were you arguing about? And they're so ashamed that they just stay silent. They won't even say it. And rightfully so. Because what does Mark tell us in verse 34? They had been arguing about with one another about who was the greatest. Can you think of a more pathetic argument than that? Now, I want you to actually peel back a little and also think of the timing of this little skirmish. What happened right before this? Look at verse 30. These are the verses we looked at last week. It says, they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he didn't want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he was killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So this is... I want you to picture this. This is how this went down, right? They get, Jesus gets away secretly and privately with his disciples. They're the only ones traveling, right? And he begins to teach them again about what is coming for him, what he's walking into. They're on their way south towards Jerusalem now. And he says, I'm going to be betrayed. Think about what that word means. Somebody close to me is going to turn on me. And then I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to suffer and then I'll rise again. There are two deep pains he talks about there. First, first is betrayal. And by the way, if, if he's going to be betrayed, the most likely scenario, it's going to be one of them. Secondly, he's going to suffer to the point of death. And, and, and Mark tells in verse 32, they don't, they don't understand this. They're not grasping it, right? They don't ask for any clarification. And so my guess is Jesus lays this out in front of them, and they're walking, and there's just, just this nice, awkward, long, silent pause. 
And so when they don't ask any follow-up questions, he either walks ahead a little bit or falls back a little bit, and then they start talking. And think about this. Instead of trying to understand what he said, instead of trying to figure out, do you think it's going to be one of us that betrays him? Or what, do you, what, do you, what did he mean by suffering and dying? Instead of being moved about what Jesus is walking into, they start fighting amongst each other about which one of them is the greatest. It's almost unbelievable until you remember two things. Number one, they are still funneling everything through the prism of self. They have not overcome that yet. And number two, right, do you remember what happened at the start of this chapter? Look at Mark 9, verse 2. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Now, in the timeline of Mark, that was, by best guess, one day, maybe two days before this. Let me ask you, how many disciples does Jesus have? He has 12. How many did he take up the mountain? Three. So how do you think that felt for the other nine disciples? And what effect do you think it might have on the three who are still funneling everything through the prism of self? What we're seeing here is another example of something the Bible's consistent on throughout, is that comparison always kills contentment. So much of our striving as human beings, so much of our desire to elevate ourselves, so much of our discontentment with our current lives is because we are rooted in comparison. We're looking at someone else because there's always someone else out there with more. More stuff, more influence, more money, more square footage, more cars, a more desirable job, a more attractive or in-shape body, more talent, more fame, whatever it is. Now, it's equally true that there's always someone with less, but we just don't look in that direction. And by the way, it's a pretty vain list I just listed. It doesn't have to be bad or selfish things either. It can be really good desires that are yet to be fulfilled, like wanting a spouse or having a family or serving God in full-time ministry or, or being a missionary or wanting to, do, wanting to serve God in some way that you can't yet. Really good, healthy desires that for some reason God is causing you to wait for. And that waiting isn't the hardest part. The hardest part is when he answers those same prayers for other people. Some of the most stretching times in my faith journey is when I see others receiving things that I'm desperately praying for, and so far all I've gotten from heaven is silence. And how we react in those times are pretty crucial. Because we can take our pain, and we can take our hurt, and we can take our confusion right to God. Because the Psalms, you read the book of Psalms, they are littered, littered with prayers of people asking God, God, what in the world are you doing? Like, well, where are you? Why, why are you? why are you hiding yourself from me? Why aren't you answering me, right? He's not afraid of those prayers. But I can tell you what's not helpful. I tell you what makes things worse is exactly what we see from disciples here. Because I'm guessing that the three who went up the mountain had an air of superiority about them. As if there was something they did to earn the trip. And I'm guessing that the other nine, and here's the key part, instead of going and asking Jesus why, why did you take them and leave us? I, they decide that they're going to feel bitterness and envy towards the three instead of being happy for them. Now, this is easier said than done, but I can tell you two things I've found to be very true in my life. Comparing my life and what God is doing in my life to others has never, ever resulted in love, joy, or peace, ever. And secondly, when I take my hurt to Jesus, I'm way less likely to take my hurt out on other people. And when I don't take my hurt to Jesus, I'm way more likely to take that hurt out on other people. And it's precisely because Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth. 
John 1 tells us about him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full, this is that language, full of grace and truth. I love that verse because it says that he's full. It's not 50% grace and 50% truth. It's nice, even mix. It's not 64. No, it's a 100-100. And we see that in Jesus here. Jesus is fully gracious to his disciples in this story. They don't deserve it. What they deserve is a tongue lashing. What they deserve is him looking at them like, are you guys kidding me? Have you learned nothing from me? How, how of all times could you be having this argument right now? What does he do instead? He lets it play out. He doesn't even, he knows what's happening, he lets it play out. And then when they get to where they're going, they get to the house, he asks a question. And then he lets the answer carry all the conviction that's needed. He knew what was happening on the road. He took time to process it so as to not respond out of anger. And when he did respond to it, he focused on their growth and their development as his disciples, not on their offense. Man, every, almost every time I get it wrong as a, parent, as a parent is when I'm focused on my kid's offense and not on their growth and development. And then he sat down. This was the posture of a Jewish teacher. I have something to teach you. And that is when after showing them 100% grace, he brings 100% truth. Look at verse 35. It says, sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, or maybe your translation says wants to be great, he must be last and servant of all. Now we have to give Jesus credit for the efficiency there. With one sentence, he turns the entire value system of our world on its head. With one sentence, he diagnoses how the disciples are living their lives and shows them the way to correct it. He says, if anybody wants to be first, if anybody wants to be great, and take note, he doesn't dismiss that desire. He doesn't even say that desire is wrong. Because Jesus has created us to do great things for him. He wants us to come to the end of our lives and feel that they were well spent and well invested and not wasted on trivial things. We only get one life on this earth, so we might as well make it count, especially for the kingdom of God. The problem is that we, in our pursuit of greatness, we have a different definition of greatness than God. Our sinful nature has twisted this desire into something far more evil. Instead of being great, what we want is we want to be known as great. Instead of actually doing something great, we just want to be greater than others. We want to look at others and be like, yeah, I'm better than them. But those desires do not mesh at all with God's definition of greatness. Jesus says, if you truly want to be great, guys, if you truly want to be great, make yourself last. If you truly want to be great, make yourself less. Position yourself below others as a servant to all. And we hate this because this does not match what we've ever heard about greatness. Greatness is having a big platform. Greatness is having others serve you, right? Greatness is having the seat of honor and being seen and being known. Only Jesus, none of that matters. None of it's actually great. And so maybe you're thinking what the disciples were thinking at this moment. What does that look like? I mean, it's, it's such a radical concept that we have almost no example in our world to point to and say, this is what it looks like. And so Jesus keeps teaching, and he showed them and he showed us. Look at verse 36. He took a child and had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. The cleanest, simplest definition of greatness in the eyes of Jesus is serving those who can't serve you back. 
Now we need to understand, right? We need to understand the culture that these 12 men have been brought up in. All of Jewish culture, and I mean that word, all of it. All of Jewish culture was based on a hierarchy scale. It was one gigantic social power play. They had, at dinner parties, they had seats of honor. So you would know when you're at this dinner party where you ranked. Are you the highest honor? Are you the lowest honor? Are you somewhere in the middle? They had positions of power, seats of power in their synagogues. Baked into their culture was a constant scale letting you know exactly where you stood. It was all about comparing yourself to others. And so it was all like the pursuit of everyone in Jewish culture was getting to those places, getting those positions of honor so that others could see you as great. Now think of what this would do to people, right? In addition to creating a system where people are always conniving and jealous and competitive, what kind of effect do you think it would have on those who knew that no matter what, they could never be in those places? Well, they were dismissed of having, as having no value or no use at all. First century Jewish culture, and I'll add to that, first century Greek and Roman culture, had almost no room for honoring women. One of the most groundbreaking things about Jesus was how he honored and elevated and protected and cherished women. And if we are to be his genuine followers, we must do the same. But guess who is seen as even lower than women? Children. There's there's a weird dichotomy in our world where it seems like by the day we are attacking children more and yet half of our country worships their kids. But in first first century Jerusalem, first century Israel, there was no time for children whatsoever. Outside of carrying the family name, they had no purpose because you know why? There was nothing a child could do for you. They couldn't elevate you. They could not give you a position of honor. They couldn't promote you. They couldn't contribute to their greatness. Children are consumers. They suck away, right? So why bother? Let the women raise them until they're adults, and then we'll start paying attention to them. That was the culture. And so imagine what it felt like in that room when Jesus says, if you want to be first, you make yourself last. And then he grabs a child, and he has this little child stand right in front of them. And Mark doesn't tell us how long. It just says he has him stand, and then he eventually picks him up. So I'd like to think there was a nice long pause. And he lets it sink in, and then he picks the child up and holds the child in his arms. He says, whoever welcomes and whoever honors and whoever receives and serves a child like this in my name welcomes, honors, and receives and serves me. And if that's not far enough, he takes it a step further. He says, whoever welcomes me by doing this welcomes the one who sent me, God the Father in heaven. The child in that culture represented the least of these that Jesus spoke about so often. They were helpless. They weren't powerful. They were not able to repay. They were not able to do you a favor after you did them a favor. There's nothing they could contribute to your greatness. And Jesus says, you welcome them, you honor them, you serve them. You're doing that for me. And by the way, there's no separating me from the Father. This mattered to Jesus. He taught him this often. In Luke 14, he was invited to one of those dinner parties where there was all these seats where everybody could rank each other. And this is what he said. He said to the one who invited him, when you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor and maimed and lame and blind and you will be blessed. Why? Precisely because they cannot repay you. Because then you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In Matthew 25, he, he gives a parable of the king uh, greeting those and separating those who, based to, who, who were servants or not. And, he's, and it ends with this big finishing line. The king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Now, do you know how hard this is? Or how rare this is? Even in a church context, right? I'm not even going to put Matthew, but I couldn't, I can't tell you the ratio of the number of people who've, who've talked about wanting to teach or sing or preach or lead uh, or compared to the number of people who've asked to meet with me because they have a burning desire to clean toilets or work in the nursery. It's not even close. God's values are so different than ours that even his followers struggle to obey them and struggle to even believe them. But it doesn't make it any less true. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue them. Last week, we talked about some practices and tools to try to help us flex our selfless muscles. And we need something similar with this. Because we've been conditioned by our culture and, if we're going to be honest, our overwhelming desire for the messaging to be true that we need to pursue self-promotion. And we need to look out for self because nobody else will. That we need to make sure that we are advancing and moving ourselves up. That we need to become great in our own eyes and by our own standards. And we've never stopped to ask, does this actually work? Are we actually fulfilled? Are we actually joyous? Are we actually at peace? Or, or is it not way more true to just take the lot of humanity right now and say, are we not constantly discontent? Are we not constantly hurried and spent and frustrated? Do we not constantly compare ourselves to others and feel slighted? Do we not consistently believe that more will be enough when more has never, ever been enough? Jesus paints for us a picture of a better way here, where the way up is down, where instead of pursuing promotion, we seek to lift up others. And instead of pursuing greatness, we pursue servanthood. And if you're wondering if this actually works, let me ask you this. We've been studying Mark for over a year. We're almost nine full chapters in it. Have you seen a hurried, stressed out, frustrated, anxious, discontent Jesus yet? Because I haven't. You see, the reason that God's value system does not match the world's value system is because the world's value system has never worked, never. And God's actually does. And so what we need is to come to a point where we as students and disciples and followers of Jesus, where we decide that we believe him, that we believe that his way really is the best way, that his teachings and example really do lead to the most fulfilled life, not an easy life, but the most fulfilled life. And then ask him to go to war on the self-exalting, self-promoting, comparison-waging sinful nature that we all carry. And again, we need to ask him to do this, but we don't have to sit this out. There are practices that we can implement to try and habituate our lives and our thinking and our posture towards the way of Jesus. To help, you, to help frame this, I want you to see this example of Paul encouraging the church at Philippi in Philippians 4. Listen, listen to what he writes. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in, in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Did you, did you follow the pattern that Paul laid out there? Here's the behavior to stop. Don't be anxious. Stop worrying about everything. But that's not enough, right? You can't just tell people to stop worrying. They're going to stop worrying. So here's what you do, Paul says. When you feel anxious, you pray. 
You feel that anxiety creeping up, you pray. You present your request to God. And what happens is that God himself will come and he will give you peace. He will give you peace that passes all understanding and he will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord, only he could do this. Only he can transform how you feel. And it's done, you just sit the rest of it out, right? No, Paul continues right. Then you get in the battle after that and you redirect your mind from anxious thoughts towards things that are actually worth thinking about. Things that are just and pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy and commendable. Then he tells them the ways of life, the very ways of life, the very spiritual disciplines, the very practices you've seen and heard and taught by me, live those out. That's the framework, right? So what I'm praying is that we have a moment of intention this morning. That combined with last week, we decide that we want to pursue selflessness and get away from self-promotion, that we want to live in the ways of Jesus Christ. And assuming that that desire is in place and trusting that we're all going to be praying for the Lord to do this in us, I want to give us some practical things that we can implement to help us in this fight. And the first is this, is to simply fight comparison with gratitude. If comparison really does kill contentment, if it really just leads to envy, if it leads to dissatisfaction, then we need to get in the fight against it. And there's no better tool for this than gratitude. At the moment, right, the moment you feel yourself looking with envy at another's lot in life, the moment you feel yourself looking with envy at another's answered prayer or situation, pause and remind yourself of just how good God has been to you. In fact, we've discovered in, re, in, in the last few decades that, uh, that psychology is slowly catching up to the Bible after 2,000 years. That each, each passing discovery they make just falls right in line with everything the Bible has commanded us all along, including to give thanks in all circumstances. And what they've discovered is that you can actually train your brain like a muscle to think grateful thoughts more effortless, effortlessly over time. Right? The, the way to do this is to consciously track things that you're thankful for. And so start small. Start with a number like five. And take time to think through and pick five things each day that you're thankful for. And write them down and take a moment and pause and actually think on them. And then thank the Lord for them. And it's scientifically proven now. And it's been biblically proven for 2,000 years. That if you do that for 21 straight days, you will be a more grateful person requiring less effort to be grateful. So give it a shot. Right? There's not a lot I say from the stage. It's scientifically proven. All right? This is one of them. Secondly, the most obvious ways to put this teaching into practice is to simply just do what Jesus says here. And it's to serve the least of these. Now, I want to be clear. It's a good and beautiful thing to help out a brother or sister in your church. It's a good and beautiful thing to pitch in for a friend, do something nice. Don't avoid those things, Okay? But it remains true that the truest test of following in the way of Jesus is serving those who cannot serve you back. And there are all kinds of ways to do this, right? The problem is always our willingness. The problem is never, is never the opportunities. There's endless opportunities to do this. And so I'll, I'll name a few and then be done. One, you can start right here in this context and serve in children's ministries. You know, every now and then I'll get a card or note or an email from someone telling me that God used a recent sermon or encouraging me or thanking me, and I can't tell you how much those mean to me. Those mean the world to me. There are seasons where I just cling to those things. But do you know what's never happened ever in the history of this church? Never has a baby in our nursery looked at one of our TOTS workers and said, your service means the world to me. 
Because of you, right? My parents are hearing gospel truth right now. Because of you, I feel safe at church. Because of you, it's more likely that I'm going to grow up in a family that values the gathering church. Because of your service, my life will be better because of you. They've never done that. Do you know what they do? They cry, throw things, and poop their pants. That's what they do. They can't express appreciation. They can't pay you back. They can't thank you. And it's precisely why Jesus is so honored by that service. It's why more treasures in heaven are stored up in that hallway every Sunday than are ever from this stage. It's why Jesus says it's the definition of greatness. Right? What, whatever you do for them, you're doing it to him. And by the way, we didn't plan it. We just so happen to have all kinds of gaps in our child care in December. Visit the table on the way back. It's a practical way you can live this out now. Secondly, be an advocate for children. I don't know if you're noticing, but it seems like our world attacks children more and more and more. It kills them in the womb. It sees them as nuisances and inconveniences. It abuses them. And in that reality, followers of Jesus must be the first to step into the breach. I think of foster families that we have in this church who have loved and cared for and cherished and protected young babies who have since left their home And those children won't even know how crucial those months were for their development. They won't ever be able to say thank you. They probably won't even remember these families. But Jesus knows. And Jesus sees and Jesus calls it greatness. And so when you get the chance, vote to protect the unborn. Genuinely pray and seek the Lord, asking him if fostering or adoption is something that he wants you and your family to do in this season of life. And if it seems like for whatever reason that answer is no, if you're unable to foster right now, then serve foster families. Provide meals, provide prayer support, check on them. Everybody can sponsor children stuck in poverty all over our world through awesome groups like Compassion. You can be a CASA child advocate. You can volunteer in Kids Hope and go be a mentor in a school for a kid who needs it. You can fill Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. The idea is this, get in the game. Help those who are less fortunate who could never pay you back. And there's no shortage of ways for you to get in this fight and uphold the dignity and value and worth of every man, woman, and child made in the image of God. You just need to pray and ask the Lord, which is the right way for you to do it in this season, and then do it. You can skip the first prayer. You don't have to pray and ask whether you should. He's already answered that. Just ask him, what is the way you have for me and my family to serve the least of these right now, and then put it into practice? And Jesus says that when we do these things, we do it for him. And there should be no greater aim of our lives than to bring honor to Jesus. And so we're going to have a time of response now. And all I'm asking you to do is to specifically pray and ask God for two things. Number one, to help you get in the fight against comparison and competition by simply becoming a more grateful person. And what a better week than Thanksgiving week for that, right? And then number two, and I don't want this to be the only time you pray this, by the way. But start this morning, ask him specifically, what is one way that I can serve those who cannot serve me back? And commit to him that it's a yes before he even reveals it. So this is your time with him.